Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Now, a couple of weeks ago at Warfest, I was lucky enough, and those who were there were lucky enough to listen to Stan Perry, the last surviving troop commander from the Sherwood Rangers, talk to me on stage. He received two standing ovations, was fated and mobbed all day. But I'm sad to say that yesterday at 10 a.m., Stan passed away. He leaves a huge hole, and it's another end of an era, really. But his daughter, Kat, wanted us to put this out this as a podcast 
uh, in admiration of Stan and in memory of him too. So listen and enjoy a remarkable man talking about his wartime years. And really, it's incredible because he was in such incredibly good form that day. And it's amazing to think he's no longer with us. Dan, thank you so much for coming and making all the schlep down from, from Lincolnshire to be here this morning. Uh, I feel privileged to be invited, James. Your book has stirred me so much. The deep research you've done into building uh, a, a, a wonderful, wonderful book. And if you haven't bought one, go and get one. Um, You're saying all the right things. <laughs> You're saying all the right things. No, obviously, Stan, I, I know your story, but, but, but these good folk don't. And um, I don't want to just jump straight into, into Normandy. Uh, I know you were sort of born and brought up in, the, in Suffolk, near Bury St Edmunds. I, I was, yes. And then eventually you found your way to the Sherwood Rangers. I but did. How, how did that come about? Because you had a little foray with the SAS as well, didn't you? I um, don't talk about my time with the SAS because it was uh, a matter of heights and depths and finished in more depths than heights. And um, Blair Main, who was my colonel, gave me an option, which was either to take a court-martial, which would have almost certainly seen me inside, uh, or to find another regiment. I, I was a fairly decent rugby player and I played for Sandhurst and I played, uh, I was, I had a, a trial match for the army and uh, eventually played uh, a couple of games for the army. And uh, Stuart Hills, who was a subaltern in the Sherwood Rangers at the time, uh, I'd been in touch with because we'd played rugby together. And uh, he said, um, I think Sherwood Rangers are looking for the odd subaltern. Um, we have DG tanks. And uh, yeah, they're quite exciting. Uh, so I made an application, but um, wore off his paperwork, perhaps, or whatever the uh, paperwork of the army was in those days. Took rather a long time, and I didn't catch up with the Sherwood Rangers until um, D plus four, the 10th of June, 1944. Uh, it was rather odd because uh, I was carrying my own kit bag and my own rucksack <laughs> and uh, begged a lift on a truck to get out to join them. Uh, he dropped me off with a, uh, a squadron of tanks which turned out to be the 4th, 7th Dragoons. Who said, well, you don't want you. <laughs> Sherwood Rangers are down the road. Uh, so I joined up with the Sherwood Rangers. Didn't know my first colonel very well. Uh, he got blown up uh, quite shortly after I joined the regiment. Well, uh, actually, it was a day after. It was on the 11th of June that they got hit. June, yeah, the, yes, um, the, the regimental headquarters uh, in San Pierre got hit. Thanks. I, I, I was actually there. <laughs> but I, I wasn't very military active at that time. <laughs> Busy unloading my kit back. <laughs> um, my second uh, commanding officer uh, was out of this world. Stanley Christopherson 
was the finest commanding officer I'd seen. I'd been in the army four and a half, five years, and Stanley Christofferson was the finest commanding officer you could ever meet. He was a bit upper class, public school and Sandhurst and all that, um, but he knew everybody in the regiment and he would talk to his second in command in the same way as he talked to the regimental lavatory cleaner. He knew everybody at every rank and whatever their standing. And he was a very, very fine regimental commander. Um, would you like me to tell you about one or two of the characters? Peter Celeriac was my uh, squadron commander and he was a remarkable man because he had um, a great facility for using archaic English. Uh, I recall on one occasion I got a radio call from Peter which said, eh, Hello, Stanmill chap. Um, if you have a very careful examination of the land to your near front, it may well be that you will see a large hap, a large heap of scrap iron. Uh, that large heap of scrap iron. Uh, seems to take on the remarkable shape of what might be a tiger tank. <laughs> I wonder whether it is just possible that you might consider uh, confronted, confronting it in uh, activity. <laughs> uh, of course, the final decision is entirely at your discretion. <laughs> In the meantime, I'm trying to direct my gunner in the correct direction and the correct elevation. I'm trying to instruct my wireless hopper, who is the gun loader, uh, to load first two armor-piercing shells, followed by two HE shells, because the one enormous uh, advantage that the Sherman tank, which we all love dearly, um, the one advantage that the Sherman tank had got over the Tiger and the heavier and uh, much better armoured um, tanks of the Germans at the time was that it was more quickly manoeuvrable. And um, it did depend a bit on uh, what your style was, but I like to let off a couple of um, rattling uh, armor-piercing shells and get a hit, and then a couple of HEs to make a big noise and a big bang and put off the German uh, gun aimer uh, while my driver did a quick jink back and took us out of the position from which we'd fired and that was the sort of technique we used. And I was talking about uh, individuals and um, we had um, Peter Zaleriak got uh, shot and um, he was re replaced by Major Jackie Holman, who was the absolute, complete other end of the show from Peter. Jackie Holman would say, over the river at dawn, up that hill, get a, douse, uh, get a hull down position. Uh, and what do I do then, Jack? sit on that bloody old position and wait until I bloody tell you. <laughs> that would be Jack's uh, 
Uh, forgive me if the language um, <laughs> is a bit descriptive, but um, if I tell you a story, it will probably include uh, brutal and licentious soldiery. And uh, they did have a, did have a facility with uh, uh, old-fashioned English. <laughs> so forgive me if the language might just turn out to be a bit uh, a bit coarse. <laughs> we had uh, a very famous sergeant, uh, George Dring, who held the reputation for having destroyed more German tanks than any tank commander in the Allied forces. George had his technique for attacking uh, German tanks, which as he said to me, get your head down, go straight into them, don't give them time to aim at you. <laughs> and George frightened the life out of all of us, but he did get a military middle for bravery, and then he got a, got a second military medal. Um, so George was a character. Stan, tell, tell them about um, the name of his tank and how that came about. They, George's, t t tell them about George Drings' tank, the name of his oh, tank. Yeah, George, um, we, we, got a, we got a command from above that uh, we should put a name on our tanks. It should be of classical origin <laughs> and it should begin with the letter of our squadron. George was in A squadron and uh, he decided, uh, or somebody decided for him because he wasn't classical, um, uh, decided that his tank should be called Achilles. So he said to his gunner, get bloody Achilles planted on uh, painted on the front of the tank. And the gunner painted A-K-I double L-A. <laughs> George, George for, for some reason, was a bit of a friend, although he was in A squadron and I was in C squadron. And he said to me, Christ, what shall I do? So I said, best thing to do is go and tell the colonel. So he reported as the, um, recorded to, re reported to Stanley Christofferson, and Stanley said, I love it, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Just the thing for George. What was your tank called? George's tank name, Achilles, stayed. Uh, I called mine Caligula. Um, <laughs> Uh, because of a lack of uh, proper classical education. <laughs> uh, but uh, George's tank stayed. When we got into um, Northern Europe after, after we'd broken out of um, uh, France and Belgium, got onto the German uh, borders, uh, we were told to paint our tanks white for uh, a bit of um, camouflage in the snow. So um, tank names got pointed out, but George very carefully left his <laughs> showing and it did finish up um, in an army museum. <laughs> did it? That one down in North Cambridgeshire, north. Oh, uh, is it? North of the A. &M. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't um, know that. It, I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure it was his actually his tank, but they, but they did paint a killer on it, and it. <laughs> um, it was when the Air Force Museum changed to a full army museum. And I've forgotten the name of it. Sorry. But but he used to get out and stalk tanks on foot, didn't he? I, um, yes, because I'd done a lot of um, training with small arms and um, creeping about in the darkness, so to speak, um, I, oh, I did 
do a bit of stalking. Um, I, if I saw a tank and I wasn't quite sure about my approach to it, because the best approach in fighting a tiger tank was to get it broadside on. If you could actually manage to get a really good hit, if you hit it on the joint between the turret and the hull with an armor-piercing shell, you could very often jam the turret and then you did a little creep round perhaps on foot to have a look and see whether the, perhaps they weren't able to uh, rotate the turret. And uh, so I did a little bit of that. Um, I also did a bit on foot uh, because um, uh, many of the Normandy uh, villagers were very tiny, very close houses, and driving a tank down the high street of a village with bedroom windows above you was a, a slightly risky business. Somebody could toss a hand grenade down into your uh, into your turret hatch, and uh, so I did have the habit of. Um, if I came to a small village with very narrow streets, before committing the tanks through, uh, I would get down. My, my gunner was a very good chap, and uh, he'd bring his rifle, and um, I always carried a 45 automatic pistol, actually, and uh, I always carried um, a four or half a dozen Mills grenades on my uh, on my belt, so that if I met anybody who uh, seemed slightly aggressive, I uh, <laughs> I was well equipped to to deal. Um, I did have an occasion that might amuse you. Um, I came to a, this little village. Can't tell you the name. It was near Villers Bocage, if you're into the map reading, but um, came to this little village, very narrow street. We'll hop down and have a look. And I met a, uh, a, fr a Frenchman. And I said, uh, hey, can you tell me, are there any Germans in the, uh, in the village houses? And he said, well, I think they're all empty except that one at the end. And he said, there were a few of them left in there. They're all pulled out. But there were a, a few of them left in that, uh, that house at the end. So we went down, door shut, um, pistol out, gunner on my left with his rifle ready kicked open the door, saw a movement, let fire, and there was a big ding-dong, ding-dong, little-little-little. I'd shot a grandfather clock. Stan, was there, was there, I mean, could you describe a sort of a typical day in the line in, let's say, Normandy. You know, the sort of what, what time are you getting up? What are the daily jobs you have to do? Then going into, into the, you know, um, what sort of the form the fighting might take, and then what time you're going to finally finishing for the day. Well, uh, I don't know whether you know. Sherwood Rangers were a member of Eighth Armoured Brigade. 8th Armoured Brigade was an independent tank brigade and it was not a divisional um, uh, brigade. It was under direct command of the army. It was split up into sometimes quite small units. Might even have one single troop of tanks going out to support some infantry in one of the smaller assaults that they were carrying out. 
or it might take a whole squadron out. But uh, we never ever fought really in um, more than a squadron size uh, in the Sherwood Rangers in that part of the war. Um, sorry, uh, the day. Uh, we slept. Um, one thing about being a tank commander is one becomes a friend and a dear pal to the rest of the tank crew. When you're all day long, five of you in a big metal shell, you learn to become friends. Um, my tank crew invariably called me Stan within the tank. We slept under the same blanket very often. We rigged a canvas sheet on the side of the tank for a little protection in case it should rain. And five of us would sleep under there and perhaps have a single blanket spread across a lot of us. So the difference between uh, a subaltern and a trooper became very, very closed, and you became pals. I have to say, th for my, my whole tank troop, um, although my tank crew called me Stan in the tank, when we dismounted, they stood to attention and saluted me. And never ever did I have an occasion when one of them didn't do that. Sorry, that's a background to uh, timing of the day. Um, you slept under a canvas sheet. Um, normally, uh, arise at dawn. Um, could be before, but I'll speak about that. Uh, you'd, you'd rise at dawn. Um, Gunnar was our cook. So we knocked together a bit of breakfast. Um, you would um, have a bit of breakfast, probably have a call uh, as the troop commander, a call to squadron headquarters, I called an O group, at which um, squadron commander would give you your programme for the coming day. Um, that's if it hadn't been done overnight because you were starting even earlier. But uh, then uh, you would load, uh, load tanks, uh, doing first a quick check round to make sure all the uh, ammunition was in the right place, that the uh, fuel tank was full, that um, you'd tidied up so that you could live uh, live in the thing for a few hours. Uh, and um, I was regarded as a bit of a crank by some of the regiment. Perhaps I, I probably was. I probably wasn't even the most disciplined of uh, young soldiers. But I, um, I was regarded as a bit of a crank because I had um, I had a habit as sometime after my tanks had moved off and uh, the lads never knew when it was coming. They knew it was coming, but they didn't know when. Sometime after we moved off, I used to bawl, whole troop, bail out. And I expected my tank crew to bail out instantly and we developed a routine uh, because I stood in the hatch, I was the one who was in the way for the men in the hatch, the gunner and the wireless op. But I started to go out of the hatch. The gunner either elevated or centered his gun 
because if you left the 75 on a Sherman tank, slightly off-center, it would block the hatch for the lap gunner uh, or, the, or the driver. So gunner was responsible for making sure that the gun was either elevated so it wasn't in the way or, or centered. And as soon as he'd done that, he would leap up, put his shoulders under my bum and give me a push. And then he would reach down and the wireless hop would come across the tank and get his shoulders under the bum of the, um, uh, of the gunner and we would come out in a stream of three. A bit risky for breaking your leg if you went over the side, but a bit better than getting burned up. So I did that every time we moved, we, we had that. And it did, um, it did save us on one occasion when I um, inadvertently showed my bum to the enemy and uh, got uh, brewed up. I got hit in the, in the engine and it brewed up. And we got all the, we got all the, uh, all, got all the crew out in one piece. We'd then be moving on. Um, maps were terribly short. Um, I cannot remember the time when I ever went out with a printed map. At O Group, um, the squadron commander would have a map and you'd have your uh, own map board and um, you would try to do a little sketch of where, where you were moving to. Um, a bit difficult because there'd be three, four other troop commanders all wanting to get at the squadron commander's map at Wells. So sometimes your, your orders were very sketchy. Sometimes they were quite short distance. Um, as I say, squadron commander might say, top of yon hill, take up uh, hull down positions, cover the road to the right or the left and it might only be perhaps half a mile. Uh, on other occasions, it might be as much as five miles when you were going through two or three um, villages and uh, making your way forward to a retreating enemy with a bit of luck. Um, longest day I can ever remember was from an hour before dawn, which in the middle of July would have been about three o'clock in the morning, until about midnight. And I was supposed to be um, uh, on guard. I think it was Hill 103, but I may be wrong. And I, I sat on the top of the hill forever. I smoked 50 cigarettes. <laughs> Lighting a cigarette and throwing it away. Um, to my sins, on that day, I, I was um, uh, at home, brought up in Suffolk, uh, with a, a very devoted Christian family. And for my sins, I was looking out from the top of the hill and there was uh, quite an artill artillery bombardment going on. It was over my, it was going over my head to somewhere behind. And um, I, I kept looking out and I saw some movement in a church steeple. And I reckoned that's an artillery outpost. So I 
directed a troop fire onto it and I destroyed a church steeple and it, it did uh, relieve me a bit that I saw a couple of bodies flying out of it. So there had been somebody up there. And, uh, but it always was a bit on my... My mother would have um, given me a real rocket. Um, shortest day uh, was... Uh, we did get occasional days of rest. Uh, sometimes they were punctuated. Um, sometimes uh, we actually stayed in rest for a day and uh, we could wash our socks and uh, uh, the, um, the aroma inside a tank <laughs> after uh, a few hours um, could be quite interesting. <laughs> um, so we were, if we had a day's rest, we could uh, get uh, cleaned up a bit. Um, there were days when uh, we would go forward and um, bump into uh, German armour uh, and uh, perhaps engage in an uh, exchange of shots and um, I, I did uh, disable one or two in my time. I, my best job was that um, I never believed in staying on a road if I could reach my same objective by going cross-country alongside the road because very often if you came to uh, a Y junction in the road there could be an 88 millimeter anti-tank gun sitting there and if you were bombing down the road uh, you were uh, very, very much at risk. So I liked always to approach the little junctions but on a slightly circuitous route so that I could come in at the side. And um, my biggest claim to fame is that I probably destroyed four or five um, 88 miller guns and uh, that... Uh, that did make a contribution. And that's because of the indirect approach you took? I think so, that's what I felt. That, um, because we operated so much as independent troops, um, away from uh, central command, we each had our own techniques of um, how we progressed. So uh, I believe that the Cuitous route, uh, although you might get a bollocking from the uh, squadron commander for taking uh, five minutes longer than he wanted you to, um, at least it, I think it, it gave you a much better chance of, um, of, of coming up on the enemy broadside on rather than head on. And Stan, a lot of the time, almost all the time in action, you were operating with infantry. I mean, what were the challenges for, for tank crews operating with infantry? When um, you were operating with infantry, um, what, what were the challenges for, for the tanks? Normally, the infantry would uh, try to take cover from the tank troop and come behind you, but provide um, cover on your flanks, which was quite handy. Sometimes, if the enemy were known to be dug in in trenches, poor bloody infantry used to have to go in front and winkle out the trenches. So it was varied very much. Um, the first thing to do was to try to make uh, 
a good relationship with the um, platoon commander or whoever, uh, sometimes just a sergeant, um, uh, and uh, probably never less than a sergeant, um, who were a very key and important part of our, uh, part of our um, military life. Core of the regiment were sergeants, and um, I might tell you about one later on if we have time. Um, but um, first thing you do is make good relationship and understand what each of you were going to do. Uh, I, I have presented a photograph to um, the drill hall in Nottingham, the Army Reserve Centre now in Nottingham where my regiment have a squadron uh, and it is a picture of my troop taken in a German German village and it is seated all over with lowland Scotsmen <laughs> and uh, I was giving them a ride up to uh, to where we expected to make an engagement. And Stan, to, what about the, the crossing of the Nuoro? Because that was a big day for you, and that was a day where cooperation with the infantry didn't work out quite as planned, did it? I, um, crossing of the Nuoro began on the 15th, I think. Or I should just say for everyone, that's George Dring on the left. And ah. that's, that's a killer. Oh, uh, yeah, oh, yes, and thanks, um, 15th, 16th, um, the crossing of the Nuoro. The night before, uh, Stanley sent for me and said, um, you're in the SAS, you're just the guy to do a little uh, foot recce. Can you go down and have a look at the river and see if there's anywhere we can cross? Because the bridge has been blown. The Germans have blown the bridge. And they may not have it rebuilt by the morning. So I crawled off in the middle of the night and um, I'd only just got my head down because we'd had a fight the day before and uh, it had been about midnight before I got my head down. <laughs> But um, one, uh, if uh, Stanley said, jump six foot in the air, you were six foot in the air before he could get the rest of his sentence out. Um, and so uh, I went on this little recce. I had an infantryman with me and a sapper with a minesweeper thing. And uh, we crawled down and had a look, and we found a place where um, it looked as if some animals had been watering. The, 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 the river was only about three foot deep. Um, bit of a sandy bottom, but um, not too bad. But the banks had been broken down a bit, and so it, it was crossable for tanks. Uh, on the way there, we'd seen uh, a couple of cigarette lights. And the infantry with me said, that'll be a machine gun post, let's go and give them something. <laughs> Not likely. If we, we start shooting out here now, everybody's going to know we're on the way to the river. So um, we... Uh, did manage to um, come back fairly close to where they'd been and lobbed them a couple of mills grades in to share out. <laughs> um, it seems a very odd thing that a born deep Christian should have in his mind to kill somebody probably much of his own age, maybe with his own connections, like yours, mum and dad and girlfriend and wife. Um, 
but um, I have to explain why I was a soldier. Uh, because um, when I was 16, 17, I, I, was six, uh, I was just short of 16 when we declared war on Germany. And war is evil, but um, it was so necessary. Adolf Hitler had signed a truce with Neville Chamberlain, I think, uh, from memory, um, in 1938, uh, saying that there would be no more German military advances, that they had no more um, uh, laid land claims in Europe, and that they, uh, having uh, moved into Czechoslovakia, uh, they were not interested anywhere else. In '39, he moved into Poland, and uh, it was obvious that they were striking for the Netherlands and Belgium, and then they began to occupy France, and gradually stories came through of the violent ill-treatment of Jews, and the setting up of um, concentration camps where abominable, abominable abuses were taking place. And the stories came back from that. And it persuaded my best pal, who was the vicar's son, and myself to go and join the army because we felt there was no other way of stopping that. Sorry, um, uh, you led me there. Yeah, we were crossing the Nuoro. Crossing the Nuoro. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. So, um, when I say we uh, saw this machine gun pit and tossed a couple of fan grenades into it, it was all part of the viciousness of war, we got back and I reported to Stanley, and then when got my head down, must have been about uh, two o'clock in the morning or something. And uh, it was an hour or so before dawn when I got a runner from my uh, squadron commander, uh, Jackie Allman in those days. Um, I got a runner from my squadron commander. You know where the river is. You know what it's like. Want you over the river at dawn and up that hill, and I want you to take position hull down, overlooking the road down to Berju. So, uh, the lovely quiet dawn that we had and the lovely smell of the um, orchard in which we were resting were overtaken by the curses of all the lads getting hauled out of their beds so early and the smell of um, uh, Sherman tank exhausts and the rattle of moving off and uh, we moved off anyway got to a uh, grassy open field and uh, just before we got there met a, um, uh, uh, not sure whether he was a colonel but certainly a staff, of, uh, uh, staff officer of um, one of the um, southwestern infantry regiments who said, um, I want you to come with me back up my chaps. Um, Germans are, we, uh, are digging in trenches over there, and if you come and support us, we can wiggle them out. My orders, get to the top of the hill. Um, uh, this uh, infantry officer, uh, whom I thought was bringing a troop to support me up the hill, um, 
threatened to put me under open arrest for refusing to obey the order of a senior officer. Um, so I, I got my squadron commander on the phone, on the, uh, on the radio and said, what do I do here, Jack? <laughs> Uh, he spoke to the um, infantryman who st stumped off in high dudgeon and I never saw a foot infantryman again. <laughs> so, um, so far as I were con concerned, we were going up, up the hill uh, uh, totally uh, uh, unsupported, uh, except that... Uh, the second, the second troop in the, in the squadron were supposed to follow me and take up positions uh, closer to the Bajou Road. And the third tank, a third troop, was supposed to follow them up and go through them down into the village small town of Bajou. Um, uh, everything went pear-shaped. Um, the, uh, the engineer said, um, this, this grass field's mined, and I, there, there was a dead, a dead sapper lying uh, near, the, um, near the footpath. Um, he said, this, this field is, is mined and it'll, it's going to be an hour or more before we have it cleared. Now, I had uh, my squadron commander uh, kayaking because uh, I was delaying and um, I'd rather face a mine uh, rattling in front of me tank <laughs> than a bollocking from his squadron commander. <laughs> so I ordered my troop to follow in my tracks. And if I blew up, they'd know uh, at least one, one mine had gone and they could perhaps move on. Uh, as it was, I crossed the field and the troop followed me. And then we came to uh, um, we came to a bit of cultivated land in between. As uh, kind of thought somebody might nip out and uh, nick a few spuds for <laughs> for tonight's dinner, but uh, uh, he was overruled, and we um, because um, just. Uh, beyond the bit of arable land was what was known as Bocage. Bocage was overgrown um, shrubs dotted with mature trees, mostly poplars, and um, it was grown up to six, eight, ten foot even. And uh, once you got the tanks 20 yards apart, you couldn't see each other. Uh, it was that dense. And you had to duck about to get through it because there were mature trees in between. And you had to wind your way around the mature trees. Anyway, we, uh, we, we pressed on a bit. And um, my first um, disaster, uh, I was a big bang and a skimming noise on my turret. And uh, I um, met up with a, a German Panzerfaust, which was a hand-borne anti-tank weapon. Actually, most of them had it in, used to draw it in a little cart behind them. And uh, that gave them away a bit now and again. 
but um, some of them just carried them. But anyway, the Panzerfaust had carried away my wireless aerial. It had not only carried away the aerial, but it obliterated the stump uh, for the aerial. And my wireless op said, no wireless. Um, the internal communication with the tank, because the, uh, the, ta the wireless we used in tanks, known as the 19th set, had uh, three settings. It had the A set, which was a distance set from the range of about 40 to 50 miles. It had the B set, which was a short distance, um, short distance set and probably did five miles at the most. And it had the uh, intercom, which was conversation within the tank. Luckily, the intercom, of course, was not connected to the to the, to the aerial, so uh, the intercom uh, survived. Um, couldn't see my own tanks. Had to worry a bit. And thought, well, best thing is, had th they know the orders, they know where we're going, know what we're going to do, so hopefully they'll follow. And uh, so I headed for the uh, headed for the top of the hill, and uh, no contact at all. Um, heard another bang and uh, another. Um, oh, I had, uh, we had managed to blow up uh, one Panzer Faust with uh, an HE shell and a bit of machine gun fire. But um, after that, uh, we obviously met another one and there was a big bang and my lap kind of said, Christ! He's torn me bloody trousers. <laughs> and it had blown a hole through the hull and uh, presumably just the compression had torn the bottoms of his trousers. Scratched his legs a bit, but um, at any rate, it wasn't too bad. Um, pressed on a bit and um, came to a wayside uh, crucifix, um, which was rather beautiful. And my lap gunner was a devout Catholic, begged permission to get out and say a prayer, um, which got overridden. <laughs> but but we, did, we did say a prayer together in the tank in front of the crucifix. I headed on up the hill and uh, got another big lamb and uh, a Panzerfaust had um, struck the idler on my near side track and jammed it. And my driver said, you can't get any steerage. I've got a seized up track on the near side, so um, I shall go round to the left, uh, but I uh, can't get any steerage. And I spoke to my squadron commander then because my wireless officer managed to rig a jury aerial and I got my squadron commander, couldn't get my own tanks. I got my own, I got my squadron commander and said, well, Jack, I'm, you know, I'm virtually out of action and I'm, I'm very near the top, but uh, virtually out of action. And he said, well, you better pull out because you're being followed and uh, come back if you can. 
and my driver, who was a uh, sparkling chap, he managed to drive the tank with a seized up um, near side track by edging it forward a bit uh, and using his accelerator not to overdo it so the tank didn't swing but went forward a few yards and we were probably travelling at a couple of hundred yards in half an hour <laughs> but at least we did we got back and we got back and the um, the Nuaro build bridge had been repaired so I was able to go back over the bridge instead of through the river and uh, went back to the squadron. In the meantime, I'd been sniped. Um, before the second Panzerfaust? Uh, it was before the third. Um, third Panzerfaust. Yeah, uh, before, the, before the third uh, Panzer, I, I'd been sniped. I'd, um, I, I normally had the habit of driving with my hatch lids open um, and we were getting a lot of um, uh, shelling from uh, uh, naval werfers. They were five-barreled mortars which could layer a stick of five one after another and um, we were being assailed by them rather a bit, and uh, I, I thought there were one or two snipers about from what I'd seen and heard, so I decided to shut down one of my lids. And as I was pulling the lid down, my hand dropped, and I said, God, I've been stung by a bloody bee. <laughs> And then I put my hand down and <laughs> a large lot of blood and uh, actually it shattered the um, ulna and grooved the radius in my left arm and my wireless op contrived a, um, a splint. Don't know where he found the wood but he got a bit of wood and made a splint and strapped my arm up and uh, uh, I thought it, it, it hurt, but uh, well, the bullet was still in. Um, it hurt, but uh, I thought we'd go on for a bit and somebody would pick me up sometime. But then when we got hit in the uh, 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 front, um, it was time to pull out. So that was the crossing of the Duaro, as far as I remember it. In retrospect, Guy Sanders, Corporal Brooks, Frank Galvin, Guy was a sergeant, Brookie was a corporal. Didn't have a Christian name, I've already called him Brookie. Uh, Brookie, Brookie was a corporal, and Frank Galvin was a tank commander had, and Bill Sleep, who was a sergeant tank commander, all had been killed. We lost um, four tank commanders dead. Frank Galvin's tank brewed up and brewed up so badly that um, Padre Skinner who was another wonderful Sherwood Ranger. If we had blood in the tank, he would clean us up for it. He would clean it up for us. If we had somebody killed, he would decently inter their body. Uh, but when he got to Frank's tank, it had brewed up so badly that he couldn't separate the crew and the, um, the crew of Frank's tank were buried in a common grave, all five of them, unidentified individually, 
in a little village called Cambacour, just outside Perju. Um, all the residents of Perju since the war seem to have been in the habit of collecting little artifacts from uh, where Frank's tank was blown up. And some of them are now in the museum at uh, Nottingham, some are in the museum at um, uh, uh, down in the um, forest there, uh, the Yeomanry Museum, Yeomanry and Sherwood Rangers Museum. Um, I have a um, I have a point three Browning machine gun cartridge case, which um, Louis Bon, who runs this little museum in Berjou, sent me as a keepsake, and he converted it to a, a key ring. <laughs> That's on my uh, on my remembrance shelf at home. Am I overrunning? Uh, we are, I'm afraid. Um, uh, I let you. I let you talk on because I, I could sense that no one wanted you to stop, um, and it was pouring with rain, so there seemed no reason to stop you. Sorry? I said it was also pouring with rain, so there seemed no reason to stop you. Oh, I'm <laughs> but, sorry. but but Stan, we have run out of time, and, and we haven't had time to talk about your second wounding because you recovered from that wound, got married, went out to Heinsberg, got wounded again, nearly fatally. Yes. And uh, but here you are, all these years later, hell and hearty. <laughs> um, Stan, it's been a real privilege to have you here today. I'm, no, I I'm think probably the trouble with old age, I'm nearly I'm 98, is that one becomes very talkative and bores the life out of people. No, there's not, you, you, I can promise you, you haven't done that at all. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you to Kat as well um, for, for, for bringing you down. It's been absolutely wonderful. take you down to see the Sherman if it stops raining and fire that up. I won't no, make you go in it. <laughs> Has he got a crew I can mess about? <laughs>